All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Number 759, Ernest Miranda... Petitioner versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments in number 18, Roe against Wade. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Five, four, four, five. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of 310 million different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases and tonight the 12th and final in our history series, the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, a decision that has continued to rock American political landscape 40 years plus after the decision was made. We'll learn more about that in the next 90 minutes, but first we're going to start with a CBS Evening News report on the night the decision was announced. Let's watch. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. To uh, raise the dignity of woman and give her freedom of choice in this area is an extraordinary event. I think that the judgment of the court will do a great deal to tear down the respect previously accorded human life in our culture. And the debate which began that day continues, as I said, till today. We're going to learn more about the history of this court uh, case, uh, what led to the court making the decision and some of its effects on society from our two guests. Let me introduce them to you. Melissa Murray teaches law at the University of California, Berkeley. She is faculty director at Berkeley Law School Center on Reproductive Rights and Justice. Welcome to our series. Thanks for having me. Clark Forsyth wrote the book on uh, Roe v. Wade. His book is called Abuse of Discretion, Inside Story of Roe v. Wade. And his day job is as senior counsel of, uh, for Americans United for Life. Mr. Forsyth, thanks for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. So let's uh, start with a very brief overview on why this is a landmark case and what the constitutional issues were decided by the court for both of you. Let's start here. Well, it's obviously a very controversial decision. Um, the decision decriminalized abortion throughout the United States. Um, heretofore, most of the states in the United States made abortion a crime, meaning that any woman wishing to terminate her pregnancy either had to go to one of the handful of states that did permit it um, or leave the country entirely, which some women did. So the fact that the court made this sort of sweeping decision was an amazing kind of thing in 1973, um, but sweeping in its scope and also um, sweeping in its sort of view of the democratic process and sort of what was happening on the ground in the states and the court feeling that it needed to intervene in that moment. Mr. Forsyth. It was a sweeping decision insofar as it swept away all the laws in all 50 states on abortion and it, it, it created a public health vacuum because there were no abortion laws left on the books of any kind, health and safety regulations. Um, but it also suggested finality and uh, the New York Times, as you know, came out on the 23rd and said that the court has settled the issue and the irony is that it has done nothing like uh, settle the issue for 42 years. It has just been an engine of controversy, as a number of scholars had sa have said. 
So it, it was a sweeping decision. It, uh, it isolated the U.S. As one, of one, as one of only four nations of 195 across the globe that allow abortion for any reason after fetal viability. And, uh, and yet it has not settled the issue at all. So these programs have been uh, interesting because of your participation in them. And if you're new to the series, here's how you do it. We have a Twitter feed. And if you are wanting to join us by Twitter, please use the hashtag Landmark Cases. Uh, there is also a robust discussion already underway on our Facebook page. So find C-SPAN on Facebook. You'll see the video uh, there and you can join that commentary. And finally, we have uh, two phone lines uh, divided geographically. And we'll put the phone numbers up for the next 15 minutes or so. Go to calls in about 20, 25 minutes past the hour. So let's do the historical context of the 1960s and 70s and what was happening in this country societally with regards to uh, abortion legislation, uh, the women's rights movement, and uh, the kind of backdrop for the court taking this on. Can we start here? It was kind of a perfect storm of different events. On the one hand, you had the women's rights movement gathering steam, um, the idea of women sort of taking a more public role in society beyond the home and hearth. There was also a very strong movement within the criminal law to decriminalize um, areas of intimate life that individuals felt the government had no business intruding into. And the law was very much sort of a hotbed of discussion at the time. The ALI, the American Law Institute, got involved with their model penal code project, which liberalized criminal laws um, prohibiting consensual sex, um, prohibiting adultery, things of that nature. And abortion was one of the topics that it took on as well. There was an effort to liberalize abortion prohibitions underway with the ALI and the model penal code, too. We have a map, and you referenced this before, Mr. Forsyth, of the, of the states and the various abortion laws. We're going to put that on screen to show the states where it was legal, the limited number, four states where it was legal, and the limited basis. Can you talk about the state legislatures and how their approaches to this question varied? Sure. Up until 1967 or so, uh, virtually every state except for two or three or four prohibited abortion except to save the life of the mother. And even those that ostensibly allowed it uh, for certain vague reasons, I think probably limited it. Uh, certainly no state allowed abortion to the extent the Supreme Court allowed it in 73. Then in 67, um, for a period of about four years, 67, 68, 69, 70, there's four years of state legislative sessions in which the states start to enact exceptions to the traditional prohibition. And, uh, but in 1970, that legislative reform seemingly comes to an end because in 71 and 72, in the two years before the decisions, no state legalized abortion by legislation and so the reform effort really seemed to come to an end after the four four years. And why was that? Well, I, I think it was because uh, opposition uh, in public opinion and uh, in, in social reform movements had grown uh, between 67 and 70. And in 71 and 72, uh, those abortion activists recognized that they really didn't win anything in the state state legislatures. Our producers have put together a video that tries to capture the women's rights movements of that time period. We're going to look at that next. It's just a little over a minute long, and then we'll come back and talk about what's happening in society.
majority of American women in many age groups are working outside their home, but most of them are working at low-paid, relatively low-skilled jobs, often in a dead end uh, from professional advancement. housewife and a very happy mother and I feel this I have so many things to do with my daughter obviously it's a concern for all women all women face the problem of forced childbearing and forced sterilization and limited access to contraception Melissa Murray, uh, for the young people in our audience, and we do have them watching the series, high school and uh, college, uh, try to capture a little bit of what was happening and that we see in this video. So the video is really fantastic and just sort of the scope of it. Um, you really sort of see a generational shift. Um, women who for years had sort of taken on a very traditional feminine role, wife, mother, um, Betty Friedan, who railed against that traditional role, found it stultifying, and then younger women who were clamoring for more options, uh, more options in employment, more options in education, and understood control of their reproductive capacities as central to their opportunities. And what can you add to our knowledge about the time period? Well, the, the history is actually that the, uh, the feminist movement really, and the feminist leaders really came late to the, to the push for abortion. Uh, the push for abortion really started in the 1950s from doctors and, and population control uh, movements organizations that uh, wanted abortion for population control. Rockefeller uh, was uh, a big funder of population control in the 50s and 60s. And in fact, the, the feminist leaders didn't come on board until 68, 69, 1970. So they were late to the reform, abortion, so-called abortion reform movement. But of course, once they came on, um, they certainly pushed the issue uh, very hard in, in the early 70s in the two or three years leading up to the Supreme Court's decision. And what was happening in the Congress at this time regarding these issues? Well, population control was a, was a big national issue. Um, I mean, even Richard Nixon, who was elected president in 1968, uh, six months after he became president in July of 69, gives a national speech about population control. And, uh, and he appoints a national commission, which happens to come out uh, with a report uh, endorsing population uh, abortion for population control in uh, March of 1972, just as uh, Justice Harry Blackman is, is writing his first draft of his opinion in Roe versus Wade. So uh, we're going to move to understanding uh, the, the woman who brought this case to the Supreme Court. And uh, before we do, you were talking about the 50 states. This was a Texas law. So would you explain the Texas law that was being contested? Texas law was one of the uh, 30 or 40 that had prohibited abortion except to save the life of the mother. And they, uh, although there had been debates in the Texas legislature as there, as, as there were across the states, Texas retained its traditional prohibition uh, up until the time the case was filed. The case has the name uh, Roe v. v. Wade, but Roe is a pseudonym. So tell us about Jane Roe. So Jane Rowe is actually Norma Jean McCorvey, and she was a young woman um, who was married to a man who was some years older than her. She was 16, and he was 24 when they married. Um, she was already the mother of two children when she found herself pregnant. Um, the marriage was troubled, um, often abusive, 
and she sought to terminate her pregnancy. Um, she wasn't able to in Texas. Um, she'd passed the point of viability in Texas, of course, prohibited abortions. And she tried to say that she had been the victim of a rape, but there was no police report documenting that. And so she wasn't able to take advantage of a loophole in the Texas law that prohibit, that permitted abortion in certain limited cases like the life and health of the mother or in cases of rape. And so she found herself going to Henry McCluskey, an abortion or an adoption lawyer in Texas, to make arrangements for an adoption. Um, McCluskey was friends with a woman named Sarah Weddington, who at the time was thinking of filing a case challenging Texas's criminal abortion statute, but was in need of a Dallas-based plaintiff. And McCluskey informed Weddington of Norma Jean McCorvey, who at the time was pregnant, and the rest is history. So Norma McCorvey is described as a a Dallas carnival worker, uh, and um, she herself uh, said years later that she had no real understanding of the legal system and thought that this case could be settled in time for her to get permission to have the abortion. Uh, Of course, courts don't usually work that quickly. So how did she proceed in the legal system? uh, And would you walk us through the process for her and when she decided to to sign up for a a legal approach to her question and how it worked its way through the state courts? Well, this case was actually one of 20 that were in the courts. But in this particular case, she got pregnant apparently in in the summer of 69. And she actually gave, she didn't have an abortion. She actually gave birth about the time that her case uh, was in federal court sometime in uh, January or March of uh, 1970, she uh, was connected with Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, her co-counsel. The two of, two of them filed uh, the case in, uh, I think it was March of 1970. And, and as quickly as a couple of months later, and I think it was June of 1970, they had a uh, oral argument before the three-judge district court in Dallas and by October, they were heading up to the Supreme Court. There was no intermediate appellate review at this time because three-judge district courts could go straight up uh, to the Supreme Court without any intermediate appellate review. But this is, here, this is one of the uh, points, one of the uh, ironies about, and one of the problems about Roe versus Wade. Uh, there was no factual record in this case, so all of the details that we might play out about uh, Norman McCorvey's life were not in the opinion. Uh, there was no trial. There were no expert witnesses. There was no presentation of evidence. And so in the, in the, in the decision in, written by Justice Blackman, you get only the bare bones that she was uh, a single woman uh, who was n- not married and got pregnant uh, and sought an abortion. And, and then the decision is, is so sweeping that her particular factual circumstances aren't really significant to um, the outcome of the decision. And that's in part, I think, how Roe versus Wade is different from all the other cases you've uh, discussed in this series, because when you think of Miranda or Gideon or Marbury, those are very factual-laden decisions, and the, and the courts and the opinions go through the facts in a great deal of detail. But there, were, there was no fact, there was no trial in this case, so that, that, that uh, isolates it and highlights it as a very unusual decision. Who was Wade? So Wade was the prosecutor, Henry Wade, who interestingly... Um, was vying with Sarah Hughes, Sarah Tillman Hughes, who was one of the judges on that three-judge district court panel, um, for a position on the federal court. And the senator from Texas at the time picked Sarah Hughes, who famously was the woman who swore in Lyndon Baines Johnson aboard Air Force One on November 22, 1963. But he's the Dallas prosecutor and, um, by all accounts, a very sort of fair-minded man and a good prosecutor who found himself in the middle of a maelstrom. 
And would you talk a little bit about the ruling by the three-judge federal panel? On what grounds did they, they rule on the case so people can understand the legalities? So the district court ruling um, is actually quite interesting. Um, there's a lot of discussion of privacy, but also quite a lot of discussion about the Ninth Amendment, which is sort of known in legal circus circles as the forgotten Ninth Amendment. There's not a lot of case law about it. But again, the idea here is that not all of the rights in the Constitution are actually enumerated in the Constitution's text. And instead, um, the draft isn't meant to be exhaustive. There are other kinds of rights that might be divined later on through judicial interpretation. And the Ninth Amendment sort of speaks to that. And that three-judge panel talked about the Ninth Amendment being a source of rights um, for rights like this one, the right to have an abortion. And there was also some discussion of the right to privacy, which had been divined through judicial interpretation in 1965's Griswold versus Connecticut. Was it at all significant in the federal review that she had once had claimed that she had been raped and later disavowed that claim? It was not. It was the, the allegation of rape was not in the federal district court opinion. It was not in the Supreme Court's decision. And so the fact that she later recounted that is really not relevant to the decision or the future of the decisions because the courts themselves did not rely upon that allegation in making their decisions. Um, but again, that's what's problematic about Roe versus Wade is that they were, uh, they were, it was decided on a motion to dismiss, motions for summary judgment. Uh, there was no trial, no experts. Uh, it wasn't decided through the normal course of the adversary process. And, and that lays uh, the, the foundation for the problems that I think we've seen over the last four decades. So on Twitter, in response to Snow Leopard, when they uh, asked the question, when a case is determined on testimony that is later proven untrue, what could SCOTUS do after the fact? In this case, it's not a relevant question. It's not because there was no testimony about, about the rape. In a general sense, can you answer that question for the viewer? Well, I, th I think it's worth noting the fact that she said she claimed that she had been raped in order to gain access to abortion sort of suggests how difficult it was for women seeking to terminate their pregnancies to actually get this kind of reproductive care at the time. So I'm sure she was not alone in claiming that she had dire circumstances, whether it was rape or whether her life was imperiled or whether she would experience psychological trauma in order to gain access to that kind of procedure. Lots of women were doing it at a time when abortion wasn't available. What more can you tell us about Sarah Weddington before we get to the Supreme Court stage? Well, uh, Sarah Weddington... How old was she, first of all? She had just been a couple of years out of, uh, out of law school, and this was her apparently her first contested case. And Certainly, you have to hand it her to jump into a, a major federal court case like this, or one that becomes a major federal court case, and to take it up to the Supreme Court, argue it twice, and win. Uh, it's an amazing uh, first effort by a, a law student uh, or, a, or a young lawyer coming out of law school. But again, this is one of, of 20 or 22 cases that were in the courts from many different states at the time. So. You might have had, uh, you know, an Amy Smith or a Mary Jones who eventually got up to the Supreme Court, um, but the court happened to take these two uh, cases instead of uh, the 18 or 20 others it could have taken. We have to talk about the second case, which is a bit confusing because it sounds alike Roe. It's called Doe. <coughs> Uh, but before we do, you have something you want to say about Sarah Weddington. Well, for Sarah Weddington, the issue of abortion was actually quite personal. While a law student, she found herself unexpectedly pregnant, and she and her future husband wound up going to Mexico in order to get an abortion because she couldn't secure one in Texas. So she actually felt these issues in a very 
personal way. And again, I think that informed her decision to take on this case, even though she was only a few years out of the University of Texas. So would you talk about the second case, which was a Georgia case with the name Doe? The Georgia case is Doe versus Bolton. Uh, again, uh, an unmarried woman um, who was using a pseudonym uh, uh, revealed her identity years later as Sandra Kano. Um, but similarly, they were uh, challenging the Georgia statute, but the Georgia statute's different than from the Texas statute because the Georgia statute was a recently enacted law called a, a reform law that had uh, enacted various exceptions into the Georgia law. So it, uh, it allowed abortion, of course, to save the life of the mother, but it also allowed abortion for rape, for uh, uh, indications, quote-unquote, of fetal deformity, uh, for, for quote-unquote, mental health reasons. And um, those three exceptions were enacted into the Georgia law in 1968. So it was a very recent law, and it really hadn't been in effect for very long to even tell what happened. But in, in, in Doe versus Bolton, that case, too, was decided without any trial, any experts, uh, any uh, expert testimony, um, and was also decided on motions to dismiss, and then, again, went straight up to the Supreme Court without any appellate review. And we will learn that the Supreme Court heard the arguments in tandem, Roe and, and Doe, and uh, that they meant for the decisions to be read uh, as a con conjoined decisions, correct? Correct. And uh, the, but the case bears the name of Roe. The case bears the name of Roe. Um, Roe became the lead decision. Um, it's also worth noting that the law at issue in Doe was one of those reform statutes, as Clark, as, um, Clark says, a reform statute inspired by the ALI model penal code, um, model abortion statute. But it also reflects, I think, the tension between reform and repeal. So by the time the statute in Doe was promulgated, there was a real appetite for something that did more, the idea that this didn't really accommodate women and, in fact, was really making only a modest impact for those women who wanted to terminate their pregnancies and that something more repeal was actually needed. So uh, you're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. Uh, we, w our last case was uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren, and this case involves a new court. This is the Warren Burger Court. We're going to learn a little bit more about the dynamics on that court in just a couple of minutes. But I want to take some telephone calls, and I also want to get in this question from Courtney P. on Twitter, who says, Clark Forsyth, what do you think would have been different if there were experts? Well, it would have provided the opportunity for them to explore what data existed uh, with respect to uh, abortion, um, uh, what had perhaps happened, uh, what had been the medical experience, the sociological experience, uh, the impact on uh, women and unborn children under uh, Texas's law uh, or, or under the Georgia law. Um, the court uh, in, in the Doe versus Bolton case had had no uh, data or information about how the reform law, the, uh, the Georgia law with the exceptions, had been implemented, um, uh, the impact of the hospitalization requirement in, in Georgia, for example. And so uh, there, all, of the, all of the assertions of sociology and history and psychology in the Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton opinions are based on assumptions, not derived from the adversary process uh, that we normally expect of courts in making good decisions. Do you think there would have been a difference if there had been testimony? I think there would have been a, dis um, a difference. Um, I think you would have had more of the social context of the time. There would have been more discussion of the German measles crisis, which prompted many women who were pregnant and suffering from German measles to try and seek abortions to avoid birth defects. 
there probably would have been discussion of the thalidomide babies, um, this drug that came around in the 1960s that caused birth defects. I think there also would have been more discussion of women who were absolutely closed out of access to abortion because of criminal prohibitions in their state having to seek medical care elsewhere. And so I think that would have been part of the record and would have made for a more fulsome discussion with the court. Let's take our first telephone call. And this is a viewer I know that's been with us through much of the series, Josh in Algona, Iowa. Hi, Josh. What's your question tonight? Hi, thank you. I just got two quick questions. First, does the trimester framework still apply in abortions restrictions today? Or was that overturned in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where Justice O'Connor talks about the point of viability being the point where there is a state interest in the life of the fetus? And my second question is, do you think that the justices believed at the time that this was a good compromise, considering that Warren Berger joined the majority opinion and he was you know, not a liberal justice in the slightest? Thank you. Okay, thanks. We're going to save the second question because we're about to talk about Warren Berger. Uh, but does the trimester standard still, is it still law? It's not, technically. Uh, in Casey, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, the court really completely over, over, uh, overhauled Roe versus Wade. They uh, abandoned the original rationale for Roe. They adopted a new rationale, and they kind of uh, uh, abandoned the trimester and turned it into a bimester, meaning that uh, before viability, there are certain standards, and after viability, but there's no trimester. Uh, it's now a bimester with viability, the dividing line. Next is a call from Terry in Palo Alto, California. Terry, you are on the air. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm really interested that the um, in the first clip showed the context as being a feminist and, and civil rights um, introduction to um, the abortion rights discussion. And I'm wondering if going forward, if the case would be um, more fairly considered um, on civil rights terms rather than where it seems to be going in terms of trap laws and so forth, if the woman and her doctor being asserted as the people having the um, the just um, standing might be compared to a man and his doctor um, having the right to make equally uh, momentous decisions if um, if guests might comment on um, abortion rights as civil rights. Thank you very much. Melissa Murray. So I think um, you have sort of presaged a line of argument that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg offered in a, a 1980s um, uh, law review article. She famously criticized Roe versus Wade's reliance on the privacy doctrine and said that the decision would have been better housed as a sex discrimination decision, like we should have thought about abortion um, and access to abortion as essential to women's equal citizenship rather than cloaking it um, in the guise of privacy. And that would have really addressed the core issues at the heart of it, which were really eclipsed by the privacy framework. Clark Forsyth. But that route uh, would fairly admit that Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided and that the original rationale was wrong. And it would, it would, uh, it would simply ignore a major state interest that the court, since Roe versus Wade, has said exists. And that is the states have an interest in maternal health, but they also have an interest in the life of the unborn child. And uh, so that would simply ignore one major state interest that the court has recognized since 1973, and I think fairly admit that Roe was wrongly decided. 
Tom Larkin on Twitter makes this comment. The fact that they have to use pseudonyms demonstrates how difficult society treated the defendants. Any comments for him on that? Was the Doe case also a pseudonym? Yes. So next up is David, who is watching us in Tulsa. Go ahead, please. Uh, Yes, thank you for uh, another great series by C-SPAN. My question is, did the court at any point in time discuss when does life begin? And I would like to know, uh, with both of your guests, when do they believe that life begins? Well, the the court did address it in Roe versus Wade, um, but they did it in a rather dismissive way. Again, there were no facts, no trial, no evidence, so they didn't have evidence about uh, a fetal development in the record. Um, but the attorneys uh, who argued in Roe and Doe did uh, address that, but again, not not from a record. Um, but the court basically dismisses it and says, uh, "We, uh, in the majority opinion, the the court says, well." Well, we're familiar. We're very familiar with the facts of fetal development, um, but um, uh, but then uh, they decide that the unborn child is not a person under the Constitution and not entitled to constitutional protection. And uh, any more on that answer, right. Richard in Saint Petersburg, Florida. Richard, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, they said that personhood does not exist prenatally. At eight and a half months, you are not a person. Uh, we've had a lot of bigotry in our society over the years, haven't we? Blacks aren't people, Native Americans. Do they have souls, Native Americans, etc.? Hopefully one day we'll outgrow such stuff. If anyone were to submit a paper to a science journal uh, claiming there was doubt that a fertilized egg of a gorilla did not, uh, whether or not it represented a, a new individual gorilla, at least one new individual gorilla, they'd be laughed to scorn around the block. Um, I would like to ask this. Our, our, our gentleman brought up a very important point about the lack of, of factual record in the case. Um, in the case before, before Congress a few years ago on so-called partial birth abortion, DNX abortions, at least there was the opportunity to have a factual record. In fact, one of the things thrown out by the anti-life side saying, oh, this gruesome procedure regarding taking the brains out of the baby. You don't have to worry because the anesthesia given to the mother has already killed the baby. Yes, not alive, but killed. Interesting. But the president of the American College of Anesthesiologists had to step in there and say, please, you are endangering women and babies all over the country who are foregoing necessary other things, (laughs) true things, anesthesia procedures, telling them that they would kill the baby. It has, these lies have long tentacles. Response for that caller? Well, it brings up a lot of points, but but um, certainly uh, we've learned a lot more over the last 40 years uh, about uh, fetology and fetal medicine and fetal development. And one of the interesting things about the original decision in Roe versus Wade and the arguments, and as you know, you can hear the arguments on uh, the original arguments on OEA.org. You can read the tris- transcripts of the original decisions, and the word ultrasound never appeared Mm -hmm. in the original opinions or arguments or in the briefs because it only came on the commercial market in the United States a few years after the Roe and Doe decisions. But that has permanently changed public opinion. Um, And the second observation I would make is that um, in the court's most recent decision, which we'll, uh, I think, eventually talk about uh, in in 2007 in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, uh, the majority opinion does 
recognized perhaps more uh, specifically than in previous decisions that pregnancy involves a, a living human organism uh, and uh, and that's perhaps the most ex ex expressed that the court has been in, in the 42 years. Did uh, the Justice Blackman in writing the opinions uh, acknowledge the fact that medical uh, knowledge was at a certain state and would continue to evolve? Well, Justice Blackman um, had for years before joining the court been the general counsel of the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. So he was well-versed um, in various medical procedures. Um, he often attended lectures with the doctors at the Mayo Clinic. In between the two different arguments in Roe versus Wade, he went back to Minnesota for the summer and spent most, much of the summer in the library at the Mayo Clinic researching abortion, researching the history, researching the procedures. Um, so at the time, his opinion, which is actually quite robust, has a very long description of the medical history. But as Clark says, medical technology was not nearly as advanced as it is today. The kinds of fetal monitoring, monitoring and procedures that we have today were unheard of then. And so the idea that we would have this sort of robust knowledge of fetal, fetology, neonatology, um, just wasn't something that was in the ether at the time. So let's pause and learn about the, the Warren Burger Court. Now, what are the dynamics of it? What kind of a court did he administer? Well, he's certainly a very different chief justice than Earl Warren, who preceded him. Um, he had been a district of district uh, D.C. Circuit judge before being appointed to the Supreme Court. And interestingly, he was a lifelong friend of Harry Blackman. Blackman was actually Berger's best man in Berger's wedding. Um, and it was Berger who suggested um, Harry Blackman as a nominee for the Eighth Circuit when a vacancy appeared there. And he was a champion of Harry, of Harry Blackman. I think when Blackman joined the court, Berger really expected that he and Blackman would be of a single mind. And indeed, the press thought so, too. They called them the Minnesota Twins. But over time, there was a fissure in their relationship. And certainly, their judicial philosophies diverged substantially. And Roe versus Wade is really the beginning of that. Um, and by the end of their lives, their friendship was really in tatters and... The court itself, I think, sort of felt the strain of that tension. Um, Berger was um, famously idiosyncratic in terms of his love of sort of celebration, pomp, and circumstance, and that often um, wore on some of the members of the court. So when the court was prepared to hear this case the first time, it didn't have its full complement of members. Can you talk about why? Well, the court takes the case in April of 1971, takes both Roe and Doe, and they originally took the cases not to decide the abortion issue. They took the cases to decide uh, Younger versus Harris and its application. Younger was a, a divisive case within the court that had been decided just 60 days before the court took Roe and Doe. And Younger involved the question of whether civil rights attorneys could take cases from state court, uh, pending state criminal prosecutions, from state court into federal court. And that kind of general factual scenario applied in Roe and Doe. So they took these cases to decide whether Younger applied to these cases and might, in fact, knock them out of court. But then a decisive moment comes in September of 71 when Justice Black and Justice Harlan retire within the space of a week due to ill health. Black dies uh, the next week. Justice Harlan dies at the end of 71. That reduces the justice, number of justices from nine to seven it flips the balance of the court. It empowers a temporary majority of four justices to decide the cases because any temporary majority can decide cases. And for 15 weeks between September of 71 and January of, of 72, um, there are 15 weeks there when the four uh, want to decide as many cases as they want. 
uh, as they can, and they want to decide Roe versus Wade, and they see these two cases that were taken for the jurisdictional reasons, and they decide that it's an opportunity to use them to declare a right to abortion and sweep away the abortion laws, and they want to do it before the vacancies can be filled. And although they're not able to do it on that time frame, they create such momentum that by, that by the time the vacancies are filled in January 72 with Powell and Rehnquist, um, the cases are pretty much decided, and the question is only how they'll be written. I don't think it's quite as nefarious as that. Um, even though they're down by two justices for sure, and they have seven, Chief Justice Berger appoints a small committee with Potter Stewart and Harry Blackman that will screen the cases that are available to hear argument on and to basically sort of pick out the ones that will be sort of easy cases that they can decide with seven justices. So to sort of take out the controversial cases and only focus on the ones that will be uncontroversial. And Blackman writes um, in his notes that he and Potter Stewart kind of misjudge Roe versus Wade. Potter Stewart thinks that this is a case that's going to be a very straightforward application of Younger versus Harris, that federal court abstention case. Um, and in fact, it's actually a much more controversial issue. And Harry Blackman later says, you know, we really, we really bungled that. So here are the questions before the court as they considered Roe v. Wade. Uh, I'm going to put them on screen and I'll read them to you. That First, do abortion laws that criminalize all abortions except those required on medical advice to save the life of the mother violate the Constitution? Second, does the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause protect the right to privacy, including the right to obtain an abortion? Third, are there any circumstances where a state may enact laws prohibiting abortion? And fourth, did the fact that Roe's pregnancy had already terminated naturally before this case was heard by the Supreme Court render her lawsuit moot? Next, we're going to listen to some of the first oral argument with 26-year-old Sarah Weddington and Texas Assistant Attorney General Jay Floyd from December 13th, 1971. Regardless of the circumstances of conception, whether it was because of rape, incest, whether she is extremely immature, she has no relief. So a pregnancy to a woman is perhaps one of the most determinative aspects of her life. It disrupts her body, it disrupts her education, it disrupts her employment, and it often disrupts her entire family life. And we feel that because of the impact on the woman, this certainly, in as far as there are any rights which are fundamental, is a matter which is of such fundamental and basic concern to the woman involved that she should be allowed to make the choice as to whether to continue or to terminate her pregnancy. There is nothing in the United States Constitution concerning uh, birth, contraception, or abortion. Now, the appellee does not disagree with the appellant's statement that a woman has a choice. But as we have previously mentioned, we feel that this choice is the woman's prior to the time that she becomes pregnant. Because one of our goals here is to understand the people involved in these cases, um, I've read a number of descriptions of the case uh, and how it was presented. Peter Irons, for example, in his book suggests that the justices were very frustrated by the end of this first oral argument because the attorneys didn't give them constitutional reasoning for their arguments. Can you add more to our understanding of what happened in the courtroom that day? We'll start with you, Clark Forsyth. Well, because they took these cases to decide Younger versus Harris, uh, the first arguments, and again, you, you, uh, listeners can hear the arguments at OEA.org and read the transcripts, and, and it's best to listen to the arguments and read the transcripts at the same time so you don't miss anything. 
The first arguments are mostly consumed with questions about jurisdiction and procedure. Questions like uh, who has standing, is it moot, um, uh, who should have brought these cases, should they have gone to the Court of Appeals first. And there are very few substantive questions uh, and very few substantive answers until the very end. Um, and so I, I think at the end of the first argument, um, uh, one of the attorneys for the plaintiffs kind of sums up by quickly saying, and, uh, and we appeal to the, you know, the, the privacy or the right of privacy and the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments of the Constitution as the basis for our case, and kind of ends in a rush like that. Um, but the, the first arguments are consumed with procedure and jurisdiction, and that's one of the problems with the case. What more can you tell us about these two attorneys as they argued before the court? B both for the first time, obviously. Both for the first time. Um, again, to echo what Clark has said, part of what's going on here, too, is a sort of question of constitutional avenues. And one of the things that both parties sort of focus on is whether the Texas law is unconstitutionally vague. So there's very little discussion of other kinds of constitutional theories that might have been used for this case. Um, there's actually a sort of interesting and kind of funny if not misogynistic moment at the beginning of oral argument when um, Jay Floyd, who's arguing for the state of Texas, notes for the court that with these two pretty young ladies to his side, meaning Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington, um, they're sure to get the last word. And he plays this for a laugh and it fails miserably. He's greeted with stony silence. And one observer says it looks like Chief Justice Warren Burger is about to come down from on high and discipline Floyd himself. So, And I understand that actually attorneys general and solicitors general uh, actually play that tape uh, for their classes and students as to how not to argue a Supreme Court never case. Never do this. In fact, uh, John, who's watching us on, is on Twitter, said, how could attorney possibly have thought a sexist joke was a good way to start oral or argument? Was he the best they had? Well, obviously not, because they replace him with another just uh, uh, attorney, Robert Flowers, for the second argument. But Jay Floyd starts out with a bad joke, and the argument goes down from there. So after argument is over, then the justices go to conference. And from what we know about the, the conference process, a lot of frustration developed among the justices. Can mm -hmm. We'll start with you, Melissa Murray. Tell us the story of what you know about what happened there. So one big question was sort of... Um, which case would actually lead, right? Um, black men thought Doe was the one, but there was less consensus about what the outcome in Doe should be. There was broad consensus that the statute in, in Roe, the Texas case, was un unconstitutional, but mostly for reasons of unconstitutional vagueness. Um, William O. Douglas, who at the time was the most senior justice in the liberal wing of the court, felt that because there was no consensus on Doe, the chief justice was not actually in the majority, and thus the um, obligation to assign the opinion should have been his as the most senior justice on the other side. And Warren Burger did not see it that way. Um, he assigned Harry Blackman, his childhood friend, to write this opinion, much to Douglas's consternation. And Blackman went off to write. Um, what he wrote was actually quite spare, um, only 17 pages, most of it dealing with G. Judici justiciability issues and only three pages dealing with the actual substance of the merits. And that was met like a lead balloon with the other members of the court who found it unsatisfying. Some of the uh, books I've read suggested that Justice William O. Douglas exploded with rage uh, over the assigning of the opinion and uh, also the thought of rehearing the case. What can you add to our knowledge of these justices and what happens behind closed doors? Well, 
First of all, I think it's important to understand that when, when Berger replaced uh, Earl Warren, uh, the liberals on the court, among them Douglas and Brennan, uh, and even Stewart, just couldn't stand Berger. And, and, I mean, Nixon had campaigned against the Warren court. He appoints Berger to basically change the Warren court. And so Berger is, is received with a great deal of trepidation and skepticism uh, at the Supreme Court. And, and this is only like his second or third term on the court, and, and they're very skeptical of him. So um, he, uh, his assignment of opinions uh, was, was viewed with skepticism. Um, uh, Douglas did uh, doubt his integrity. And um, after, uh, in, in, in January, when Powell and Rehnquist joined the court and make a full bench of nine, Berger makes a motion, not an order, but he makes a motion to re- have the cases re-argued. And uh, Douglas and Brennan are very skeptical about this because they think that will flip the balance and result, instead of a 4-3 decision in favor of abortion rights, a 5-4 decision against abortion rights. And then that crisis uh, renews in June, May and June when Justice Blackman distributes his first draft opinion uh, and again, the, the motion is made to re-argue the cases in the fall, and uh, uh, the, some of the justices explode, especially Justice Douglas. He writes a scathing dissent that he wants to issue before the end of the term, um, uh, condemning Berger for uh, allowing the manipulation of the court. Uh, he holds that dissent, but it sneaks into the press, and it's on the front pages of the Washington Post on the 4th of July weekend, and it gets on the front page of the New York Times the next day, um, which raises tension within the court. But the crisis passes. They agree to re-argue, and it's re-argued in October of 72. We should also note <coughs> that there was a presidential election going on. And so as we're trying to teach people about the court, the court uh, always positions itself as being uh, distant from the political process. But in case after case in this series, we have learned that there are influences about the politics that uh, that really do find their way into the court and its proceedings. What about in this case? So in this case, the Nixon-McGovern election sort of dominates the landscape and is the backdrop against which the court is doing all of this. Nixon is kind of an interesting figure because he actually is in favor of liberalizing abortion access at one point during his career. But then as he takes on the much more liberal McGovern, he begins to sort of play up his own anti-abortion leanings, and he sort of elaborates those. Um, his stance on crime also becomes more articulated. And all of this, again, is to sort of position himself as the anti-McGovern, and it works, and he defeats McGovern in a landslide. Um, the court, um, it's speculated, um, and there's, I think, strong evidence for it. Um, Berger, the chief justice, um, delays releasing the opinion in Roe versus Wade until after the election and indeed after Nixon is inaugurated. So this decision is released on January 22nd of 1973, just after the Nixon inauguration. Shades of Dred Scott. (laughs) This earlier part in the history where there was a decision delayed because of a presidential inauguration. Um, So we're going to listen to some more of the the second oral argument. As you mentioned, uh, Mr. Forsyth, there's a new uh, attorney representing the state of Texas, Tex- Texas Assistant Attorney General Robert Flowers. Do you know anything about him that would be important for people to know? Well, he was an assistant attorney general um, who um, 
uh, did a better job, but but still um, the arguments are hobbled and, and, and limited by the fact that there is no trial, there is no record, there are, is, are no evidentiary proceedings. So um, the, the justices ask the attorneys questions about substance uh, and about history and about abortion, which they have no basis for, for answering. And so in, in the Jay Floyd argument and the Roberts Flowers argument, there are lots of times when the attorneys say, I don't know, uh, because they have no factual record on which to rest their answers. Let's listen to a little bit of the second oral argument. And again, it's October 11th, 1972. Under the federal constitution, is the fetus a person for the purpose of the protection of the due process clause? All of the cases, the prior history of this statute, the common law history would indicate that it is not. Would you lose your case if, if the fetus was a person? Then you would have a balancing of interest. You have anyway, don't you? You're going to be balancing the rights of the, of the mother against the rights of the fetus. It seems to me that you do not balance constitutional rights of one person against mere statutory rights of another. But it is the position of the state of Texas that upon conception we have a human being, a person within the concept of the Constitution of the United States and that of Texas also. Is it not true or is it true that the medical profession itself is not in agreement as to when life begins? I think that's true, sir. But from a layman's standpoint, medically speaking, we would say that at the moment of conception from the chromosomes, every potential that anybody in this room has is present from the moment of conception. Then you're speaking of potential of life. Yes, sir. With which everyone can agree, perhaps. On the seventh day, uh, I think that the heart in some form starts beating. What's different about the second time around? Well, you're definitely getting more substance, less of the justiciability issues. Um, Also, what's different is that more of these lower court cases on abortion have sort of trickled up. So one of the things that Weddington speaks about in the beginning of her argument is a Connecticut case, Abel versus Markle, where a Connecticut district court judge has struck down Connecticut's anti-abortion statute on the ground that it violates the rights of privacy. So fundamental constitutional rights are discussed there, as well as the Ninth Amendment. So there's more sort of constitutional grist for the mill in this oral argument, as opposed to the one that happened in 1971. We're going to take a few calls, and then we're going to hear next from Justice Harry Blackman himself on uh, being in conference and and what it was like to be assigned the opinion in this case. Let's listen to a comment from Herbert in Chicago. Hi, Herbert. You're on. Yes, I have a couple of questions or points uh, with respect that any of the decisions by any of the judges talk about when life begins in the decision. Um, Also, were there any... uh, Friends of the court briefs filed on behalf of the unborn child. I'll hang up and listen to your response. Thank you. We did take that first one before, but would you answer it for him again? The justices uh, only in passing talk about uh, their familiarity with fetal development. Um, But there were amicus briefs um, that were filed that presented pictures of fetal development and life, uh, uh, prenatal life. and, um, and in fact, the attorneys argued it. Uh, y- y- we've emphasized Sarah Weddington and the, and the Texas attorneys in, in Roe versus Wade, but there, there are the arguments and transcripts in Doe versus Bolton. And although Sarah Weddington has gotten uh, a, a lot of the media over the four decades, uh, Dorothy Beasley, who was the assistant attorney general for 
for Georgia and argued both arguments, both rounds of arguments. She is regularly touted to be the best oralist of all the attorneys in both of the cases and in, in both rounds of arguments. And you can hear her at oye.org and listen to the argument. And she made uh, a full-throated arguments on, on, on about the constitutionality, but also about uh, a fetal development and uh, a very strong argument in support of the Georgia statute. Next up is Marvin in Los Angeles. Hi, Marvin. Hello. I want to ask the question, is Roe v. Wade established law, or is there any case that could come through the court, lower court system that could overturn Roe v. Wade? One of the issues in the current presidential campaign is if you vote for candidate X or candidate Y, the Supreme Court might be changed by voting for that particular person who might appoint certain justices. So is it established? Is it safe? Or is there a case coming through that might overturn it? Melissa Murray. Um, it is established law. Is it safe is a different question. And obviously, um, safe can mean a lot of different things. You could have a decision that completely overrules Roe versus Wade. And we've certainly seen the court overrule opinions that they believe um, were incorrectly decided in recent years. But I think the more likely thing to happen um, that might endanger Roe's legacy would be a sort of intermittent chipping away of the decision, which I think we have seen over time. So I think the idea of a complete overruling might be more remote, but the idea that there might be incremental restrictions on the force of the decision might be something to think about. There would be a legislative response. Well, the states are often regulating to protect maternal health and fetal life, uh, and and that creates the cases that uh, come into the courts. Um, I would add that, that Roe was substantially overhauled in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, so the original opinion in Roe versus Wade is somewhat defunct and has been superseded by the uh, plurality opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 92 with a completely new rationale. Um, but um, Roe is completely uns unsettled, and um, uh, the, the justices actually... Uh, could, in any particular case in which a stat state statute arguably conflicts with Roe, revisit Roe versus Wade. They won't do so in the short term, um, but they could in, in, in any case. And perhaps the, the caller was also alluding to the fact that um, uh, by the time of the next presidential inauguration, four justices are going to be 80 or on the verge of 80, so the next president one way or another is going to, you know, may affect the future of the Supreme Court for the next quarter century. Looks like you have a response. I think it's a bit of an overstatement to say that Roe is defunct. Certainly Casey overhauls Roe, but it also affirms the essence of Roe. So the basic core of Roe survives Casey, even as other aspects of abortion regulation come out of Casey that are different from Roe. So the court uh, ultimately uh, ruled 7-2. to two. I want to ask you in a moment how we got to that 7-2 to two vote, but let's listen to Keith in New Ulm, Minnesota. You're on, Keith. Thank you. Um, there's been talk in all the discussions about uh, uh, the rights of the unborn and the rights of the mother. Has there ever been discussion about paternal rights? You're, sh you're shaking your head yes. 
Not necessarily, uh, not in Roe, certainly, but in other cases. So, for example, in Danforth, there's discussion of a provision in Missouri law that requires a woman seeking an abortion who's married to notify and get the consent of her husband. Subsequently, in Casey, there's also a spousal notification provision. Both of those provisions are invalidated by the court in both of those cases. There are other Supreme Court cases that deal with paternal rights. Um, at the same time, Roe is percolating at the court. There's also a 1971 case called Stanley versus Illinois, which considers the rights of unmarried fathers. And so I think those decisions often interact but aren't necessarily understood as being on the same track, but they're certainly informing one another. So let's listen to Justice Harry Blackman about uh, writing this opinion, and then we'll come back to our two guests to learn about how he got six other justices to sign on with him. Here's Justice Blackman. I think at the conference uh, after the first argument, the Chief Justice uh, sensed the sensitiveness of the of the argument and uh, of the issue, rather, and I think probably preferred not to assign it to himself as he could have. And there were personal reasons also, uh, for family reasons, I think. Uh, you go to Douglas, Bill Douglas, uh, I think wanted the case, but uh, and I don't think he'd misunderstand this comment on my part. I think Bill was in the waning years of his service and um, was not uh, writing as well as he did uh, in in prior years. Would have treated the the case um, rather peremptorily. Should Brennan write it? Brennan at that time was the only Roman Catholic on the court. And uh, I think it would have resulted in his sustaining a lot of abuse, as indeed he got a lot of it, uh, even though he, he didn't write it. Do you think he wanted to write it? No, I don't think he did. But I think he was firm in his, in his, uh, in his view. And one can go down the same way with Thurgood Marshall. He was the only black on the... Only, African-American, as we say now, in the court at the time. I think it would have been uh, hard and a little unfair. So some interesting uh, backstage dynamics explained by the justice at the heart of all this, by he writing the majority opinion. Uh, what did you learn there? I think it's great to sort of think about the different sort of personalities and how that affected the way the decision was assigned. But I think what Blackman is not gesturing toward is that he really wanted to write this opinion. He has deeply invested after the first oral argument. He had spent time writing an initial draft when there was a motion for re-argument. He worried that um, after all of that investment, he wouldn't be the one to actually write the opinion that it would be given to another justice, um, maybe one of the new justices who joined the court, um, Powell and Rehnquist. Um, so I think he does protest a little too much. There are reasons for the other the others not to write it, but I also think there are reasons that he wanted to write it as well. I'd like to pull up that still with the four questions and go through them once now, uh, again, now that we know the outcome, the 7-2 to two decision, and see how they were decided by the court. And while we're getting that ready, uh, what do you have to say about the dynamics on the court that we just heard Justice Blackman talk about? Well, it was an unusual time in the court, and uh, it was a unique time at the uh, end of the uh, 1960s in the sexual revolution. It was a unique time with the two vacancies, and so there was a lot of, I, I think, turmoil within the court. Uh, this created a crisis within the court at a, at a number of points. Um, 
But uh, what's, what's interesting is that uh, when Justice Powell and Justice Rehnquist joined the court, um, I think the, the four had created such momentum that they couldn't have reversed the momentum if they had wanted to. But th at the end of the day, Justice Powell joined, and, uh, and then at the very end, Justice, Chief Justice Berger joined and uh, switched it from a 6-3 uh, decision, as it might have been, to a 7-2. So here are the questions before the court again. We'll go through them quickly with the answers. First, do abortion laws that criminalize all abortions except those required on medical advice to save the life of the mother violate the Constitution? The court said yes. Does the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause protect the right to privacy, including the right to obtain an abortion? Yes. Are there circumstances where a state may enact laws prohibiting abortion? Yes. And did the fact that Roe's pregnancy had already terminated naturally before this case was heard by the court moot, the court said no. Here's a bit of, uh, of uh, Justice Harry Blackman's opinion. It uh, was how many pages long in total? Around 50. Around 50. So. so this is a very quick glance, uh, glimpse at, at some of his argument. This right of private privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. The detriment the state would impose upon the pregnant woman by denying this choice altogether is apparent. And from Justice Byron White's dissent, I find nothing in the language or history of the Constitution to support the court's judgment. The court simply fashions and announces a new constitutional right for pregnant mothers and invests that right with sufficient substance to override most existing state abortion statutes. The upshot is that the people and the legislatures of the 50 states are constitutionally disentitled to weigh the relative importance of the continued existence and development of the fetus on one hand against a spectrum of possible impacts on the mother on the other hand. And uh, the court that day, for example, uh, we learned that Justice Blackman invited his <coughs> wife Dottie to come to the court to listen to him. He decided to read a summary. How often does that happen in court cases where the justices actually read their opinion from the bench? Well, read the entire opinion, probably rare. Uh, read a short summary. It happens uh, now and then. Um, and uh, so it was, it was not uh, completely out of the ordinary. And what do we know about the dynamics in the courtroom that day? Well, we know that Justice Powell sent a note to Dottie Blackman um, telling her that she should be very proud of her husband on this day. She was in the audience. Um, Powell was one of the newer justices on the court. He had joined with William Rehnquist, and he was sort of a wild card. And Blackman was very glad when he full-throatedly endorsed Roe and joined and, in fact, pushed Blackman to sort of expand his concept of when the state's interest in regulate, um, to regulate abortion would actually come into being. Um, Blackman had wanted to leave it at three months, and Powell pushed him to sort of expand it toward viability. So in terms of history of the country, we, uh, we learned that it was after the Nixon inauguration, but the day became historically notable for another reason. As you mentioned, Lyndon Baines Johnson, ex-president, died that day, and it's really that that dominated the headlines. How um, much did it? How long did it take for the media to catch up with the importance of this story? Well, it's on the front page of the New York Times, uh, below the uh, below the fold, uh, when Bay, uh, Johnson's death is is the lead head editorial or the lead headline in, on January twenty third. Um, but it was uh, announced by you know Walter Cronkite. But but what's significant, I think, about the early media announcements is that the media almost consistently says that the right to abortion is limited to the first three months. And we know that that's simply inaccurate. And so that's basically the initial message the public got about Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. And we know that 
when you look at Roe and Doe together, and, and you look at the viability rule in Roe versus Wade, but Doe versus Bolton creates a health exception after viability uh, in which the court defines health as all factors, uh, physical, psychological, familial, and the woman's age related to the well-being of the patient. That unlimited health definition uh, requires the states to allow abortion even after uh, fetal viability. So the press got it wrong and, and has continued to get it wrong. So for our final half hour, we always talk about the impact of this decision on, on the court and on society. We're going to begin with uh, Harry Blackman once again talking about uh, what uh, the public reaction was in terms of his mailbag after this decision. There were the expected comments to the effect that uh, your mother should have aborted you or I have been praying for your immediate death and much of the correspondence is abusive. I suspect I've been called every possible epithetical name, author of a new Dred Scott opinion, Hitler, Butcher of Dachau, Pontius Pilate, Herod, murderer, madman, and the like. I can outrun Joseph Swan, the abolitionist judge, and I suspect I can outrun Chief Justice Roger Toney. Reaction? He certainly got blowback for this. Um, there were, just as there had been calls to impeach Earl Warren, there were actually even more vociferous calls to get rid of Harry Blackman. So this was the sort of defining moment in his life as a justice. And he would go on to do many great things on the court, but he is and was then defined by Roe versus Wade. And what are your comments when you hear him talk about this? Well, actually, though, the justices completely underestimated the uh, public opposition that there would be. I mean, there was, uh, there was discussion in various memos uh, in the deliberations in the two years leading up to Roe about the, the media's, uh, this is going to be criticized by the media. Um, but, of course, the public opposition and uh, or the, or the public uh, anger has been more significant. It has resulted in uh, hundreds of state laws attempting to limit uh, uh, the, the right to abortion as well as constitutional amendments uh, introducing Congress and congressional hearings from 73 to 83. So the, uh, the, the justices completely underestimated uh, where the public was or, or would be. Let's go back to phone calls. Next up is Nathan in Bishop, Texas. Hi, Nathan, you're on. Nathan? Uh, hello. Go ahead, please. Um, <clears throat> I had a question. Um, Hold on real quick. Um, that why couldn't the Supreme Court decision be handed down directly to the states under the Tenth Amendment since abortion isn't found in the Constitution? Why couldn't it have been invalidated under the Tenth Amendment? He said, actually, why couldn't it be handed down directly to the states under the Tenth Amendment? Or why uh, has the Tenth Amendment, Amendment. Not, not been a relevant consideration? Uh, the court has, has, has never considered uh, the Tenth Amendment uh, to uh, be a blockage to its decision in Roe v.ersus Wade. In effect, what does the Tenth Amendment do? The Tenth Amendment uh, reserves powers to the states, um, but the court, in effect, has said that the Fourteenth Amendment supersedes whatever the Tenth Amendment uh, you know, might say. Although there have been many cases in recent years which resurrect a more robust view of the Tenth Amendment. Right, but the court has, has not applied it in the, uh, in in the area of abortion. David is in Tracy, California. Hi, David, you're on. 
Yes. Um, what What do you think could have or should have happened back then that would have settled this issue once and for all? Thank you. Melissa Murray. Well, that's a tough question. What could have been done to settle this issue once and for all? I, I do agree with Clark that um, a more robust factual record would have sort of made clear what the stakes were for the many women who were seeking abortions and weren't unable to get them. I also think it would have helped make clear what the stakes were for the states who were seeking to regulate, um, whether in the interest of maternal health or in the name of immorality, which some case, some states were actually quite forthright about. Um, so I, I think one of the difficulties of Roe is that you don't have that factual record. Um, and for that reason, you really don't get the voices of the many participants and constituencies who were affected by this decision. How would you answer that? Well, I think I would add that some issues in a democracy are, are simply not finally settled uh, and it may take decades to settle s such issues, especially uh, issues of strong cultural current. And um, but I do believe that that it's, I think it's clear that Roe has unsettled this issue more. And if the court had not stepped in and left it to the American people, it would have provided the opportunity for public opinion to affect public policy and be more in line with public policy. And the, the fact that public opinion is out of sync with the broad sweep of Roe versus Wade has kept this issue simmering for 42 years. We could say the same thing about a lot of the most divisive issues of the last century. I mean, segregation was certainly an issue that, if left to public opinion, I think would have come out very differently at the time. So, I mean, I think there is a role for the court to play in protecting constitutional rights regardless of what public opinion is. And certainly those who have defended Roe versus Wade have spoken about that. Like, it's true that there may have been backlash, but it wasn't clear that the democratic process would work um, in a way that would vindicate existing constitutional rights um, or just the views of women who were sort of clamoring for this kind of medical care. Is it fair to say that the criticism of the court on this case doesn't fall neatly into the liberal conservative divide? I think that's fair. I think it spans a lot of different constituencies. Um, and I think people justifiably, reasonable people can disagree on this question and do. I think the larger question is, what is the court's role in a democratic process? When should the court intervene when the political process breaks down? Um, we've talked a lot about the reform effort. The reform effort had basically stagnated by the time these cases went up to the court. And that's the reason why there are so many cases in the pipeline at the time that Roe was decided. The political process had sort of broken down. The big difference, though, is that Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 was based on the Reconstruction Amendments. It was based on the 14th Amendment, which specifically was designed to protect the rights of the freedmen. Whereas in Roe versus Wade, there is no history whatsoever in, uh, in, in Anglo-American history, no history of an abortion right. And so the court was, was not re relying upon the history and text uh, and of the Constitution. It was creating something wholly new. And, and uh, in, the, the justices uh, in implementing the Reconstruction Amendments is something that is part of, of judicial uh, uh, character and part of the judicial function. But the court stepping in here and becoming what Justice O'Connor said in 1983 as the nation's ex officio medical board with the powers to approve and disapprove operative practices throughout the United States is not a role that judges can do. They can, cannot be the National Abortion Control Board. And the 42 years has shown that very clearly. But they weren't making this up 
out of whole cloth. I mean, there is a decision, 1965's Griswold versus Connecticut, which speaks of a right to privacy that emanates from the penumbras of various constitutional guarantees. And Roe is rooted in Griswold, right, rooted in the right to privacy. It also speaks of the Ninth Amendment, um, not as clearly as it speaks to the right of privacy, but again, this idea that not all constitutional rights are enumerated and the Constitution doesn't necessarily exhaust all of the rights that the people might retain. But again, I think the distinctions are stark there because in Griswold, the court acted like uh, uh, a court of judges and, and simply invalidated the statutes. Whereas in Roe versus Wade, the court just didn't invalidate the Texas and Georgia statute. It rewrote a national statute of considerable detail that it has been forced to administer as, as the National Abortion Control Board. That's completely different. And it, it, it completely rethrusts and reinvests the court in this issue uh, uh, year to year. Uh, that the, and the, the only way that the court can really settle the issue uh, is, uh, to some extent, is by relinquishing its role here. Robert in Dallas, you're on the air. Hi, Robert. Yes, thank you. Um, I want to confirm my understanding that Sarah Weddington was Judge Sarah T. Hughes's uh, former law clerk, and that when the case was filed in Dallas, it may have been something other than a coincidence that it ended up in front of Judge Hughes, and whether they're aware of any background like that. Thank you. Melissa Murray? Um, Sarah Weddington wasn't her law clerk, but her co-counsel, Linda Coffey, had been Judge Hughes's law clerk. And when they were thinking of filing suit, they initially thought of filing in Austin, which is in the Western District of Texas, but later decided that they would have a better shot in the Northern District of Texas, where Dallas is, because Judge Hughes was likely to be part of the panel. So I don't think it was necessarily angling, but it was certainly a degree of strategic forum, forum shopping. One, uh, you said earlier that you didn't think that the, the personalities in this case were quite as large uh, as some of the earlier cases we did. But Norma McCorvey does have an interesting arc to her life story. Uh, we've got some video to show her, uh, our audience of uh, how she has been involved in this issue, but she's changed camps. So let's watch. I don't think I have enough time to say all this, but I would like to take this opportunity to apologize to each and every one of you here today. I lied and I'm sorry. I've repented. I've asked Jesus into my heart. I've started Road No More Ministry. And what can I say? I love Jesus and I love all of you. Thank you. Boy, what a journey this has been, right, guys? How many of us love Jesus? want to say Roe versus Wade overturned. This is the day that I have been waiting for. When we filed the affidavit, uh, when we had our news conference on the 18th, the actual filing was on the 14th of this month. So we're looking forward to uh, having abortion, the covenant of death to be overturned like our great president George W. just said. And God is good and Jesus is. Every year on January 22nd, there is a very large march here in Washington, D.C. Norma Corvey, featured speaker for many years at the, that rally. Uh, what can you tell us about her life story? What happened? 
Well, suffice it to say that she completely changed her views, uh, and she became uh, basically a pro-life activist. Um, but she went beyond that because she has testified before Congress uh, more than once, I think, in support of uh, overturning the decision. And uh, she, as well as uh, the Jane, uh, the Mary Doe in Doe versus Bolton, Sandra Kano, uh, both of them filed uh, cases or tried to file cases in 2005, 2006 to revisit the original decisions and to seek to overturn those decisions. Um, but their motions were denied in the federal district court, appealed in the court of federal court of appeals, and the Supreme Court in 2005 or six refused to hear those cases and refused to reopen them. Which is, which is not to say, though, that the Supreme Court has turned a deaf ear to them. In Gonzalez versus Carhartt, which is the 2007 decision upholding the partial birth abortion ban, Justice Kennedy cites Sandra Kano's brief for the court in upholding the partial birth abortion ban. So they do receive an audience with the court at some point. Do you happen to know any more of the details of Norma McCrovey's personal story and what caused her conversion on this issue? Well, it's my understanding that she became a born-again Christian and her faith is part of her the shift in her views. Let's hear a question next from John, who's watching us in Evergreen Park, Illinois. Hi, John. Hi. Thank you very much for the fairness of this. I just wanted to bring up, too, it was my understanding in the uh, Bolton versus, uh, uh, Bolton versus the, the Georgia case where Sandra Kano never wanted uh, an abortion. She went in to file for a divorce, but her attorney tricked her by putting in the papers that she wanted a, uh, an abortion. The second thing is talking to most uh, gynecologists, obstetricians, they feel that the life of the mother is really not at stake because we now have a cesarean C-section, which can protect both the mother and the baby. And if this case, uh, Roe versus Wade, is rooted in Griswold, Griswold uh, said the right to privacy pertained to things like uh, contraceptives. Isn't it a tremendous stretch to go from, I have the right to buy contraceptives, to I have the right to kill an innocent, defenseless, defenseless child? Now, the question for Melissa and the gentleman, with all due respect, yes or no, do you consider the baby in a mother's womb a human being? And the reason why that's so important is because Justice Blackboom said, if we know that life begins at conception or before birth, we have to revisit this. And All right, John, I'm going to let you go at that point because we have little time and lots of, lots of questions on the line. Um, so just to sort of make clear the bridge between Griswold and Roe, um, in between in 1972, just a year before Roe is decided, there's another case before the court dealing with contraception. It's called Eisenstadt versus Baird. There, the court is considering whether a Massachusetts law that prohibits the use of contraception to unmarried people is constitutional. And the court, um, in an opinion by Brennan, I believe, um, writes that the right of the individual to decide whether or not to bear or beget a child is the right of an individual, not necessarily the married couple contemplated in Griswold. And it goes on to say that um, what is the married couple but a collection of two individuals? So... In Roe, it does seem like a leap from contraception in Griswold, but again, it is that language in Eisenstadt that speaks of a fundamental right to determine whether or not to bear or beget a child that furnishes the underpinnings for Roe. Clark Forsyth. 
And yet, Eisenstadt wasn't even a privacy case. It was an equal protection case. And uh, as the history shows and the ju- papers uh, of the justices show, as I've pointed out, an abuse of discretion, um, uh, Justice Brennan was writing Eisenstadt at the time of the Roe and Doe decisions. And he, in, in envisioning addressing the abortion question in Roe and Doe, he puts this paragraph about privacy uh, that was complete dictum uh, into this equal protection decision in Eisenstadt versus Baird for the very reason that they can pluck the, the dictum out and use it in Roe versus Wade. But maybe to address the second part of the, of the caller's question, um, uh, I, I do believe that, uh, that science shows that the life of a human being begins at conception. But what's really more important for Roe versus Wade in our discussion tonight is that the states uh, have uh, progressively strengthened their prenatal injury law, their wrongful death law, their fetal homicide laws, to the extent where we have 50 states today with prenatal injury laws that protect the, uh, the, uh, the unborn child. We have uh, uh, laws, uh, wrongful death laws in 36 to 38 states that protect the unborn child. We've got fetal homicide laws in 39 states that protect the unborn child. And that is, is a very significant show of public opinion support for fetal protection. Over this next call, our guests have referenced the many cases that have come uh, before the court over the past 40, 42 years uh, that have considered some aspect of abortion. Um, by our count, there was as many as 40. Your book has 29, I think, and depending upon how broadly you, you count this. But we're going to put some of the uh, names on screen. You've heard references to them. And the last one you should note is a case before this court, the Roberts Court, Whole Woman's Health versus Cole, which is not yet on the schedule. So as we look at that, let's listen to Mary Ann in Haverford, Pennsylvania. Hi, Mary Ann. Your question or comment? Hi. I'm a prolific physician here in Philadelphia, and I have uh, two things to say. I find it so painfully inconsistent that the child in the womb has no rights, and yet a few years ago when Scott Peterson killed his wife, Lacey, and their unborn child, he was accused of killing two people. And secondly, Pennsylvania was the first state to have a law that was enacted to protect uh, or defeat abortion by making the uh, mother of the child wait 24 hours and if under the age of 18 had to have her parents consent i wanted to hear what um our two attorneys have to say about that thank, thank you, you very so much. much for taking my call so casey um this is the case that you're referring to at the end it's a 1992 case um, planned parenthood of southeastern pennsylvania versus casey and there the court is considering pennsylvania's abortion control act which has a number of different provisions, um, one that requires um, parental notification, for example, another that requires a 24-hour waiting period, and then another that requires spousal notification. It's in Casey, as Clark reminds us, that the court affirms the essence of Roe but scales back and dismantles the trimester framework and also the standard of review that's required for abortion cases. So it was strict scrutiny after Roe versus Wade. It's then lowered to the undue burden standard. And the idea here is that abortion regulations will not be rendered, will not be considered constitutional if they impose a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. The waiting period is upheld as not having a substantial obstacle effect. And the parental notification feature is also upheld. But the spousal notification feature is struck down on the ground. The court says it renders Um, women subordinate to their husbands, that husbands should not have necessarily the authority to unilaterally um, invoke this kind of veto over a wife. And more interestingly, the court is worried about the fear of domestic violence or coercion in these relationships. 
Response for the caller? Well, the, the physician is, is pointing up the, the fact that Roe versus Wade focused only on abortion. It did not address uh, prenatal injury law, fetal homicide law, wrongful death law. And it also left it to the states to enhance legal protection in those areas, and the states have done so. So we now have, uh, in fact, uh, half of the states now with fetal homicide laws that extend protection from conception. But you've got this Supreme Court edict across all 50 states uh, I allowing virtually abortion on demand uh, at any time for any reason. And, and that has created, the, because there's such a tension here, that, is, that has kept the issue simmering for these 42 years. As one of our callers mentioned, uh, this issue is uh, certainly simmering in the presidential campaign this year. And uh, as we heard, the court is hearing another case. Uh, the uh, Congress itself over the issue of Planned Parenthood funding. Up until uh, very recently, there was the threat of a government shutdown uh, that hinged on funding for Planned Parenthood. So as our guests have made the case, this continues to uh, really be debated in American society. Our next clip are two senators on the floor of the Senate on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade in January of this year. Even before America's founding, the law was on a steady march toward protecting the human beings before birth. Through the 19th century, medical professionals and civil rights activists led a movement that succeeded in prohibiting abortion in every state except to save the, life, the, save the mother's life. America had reached a consensus on the importance of protecting the most vulnerable. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court swept all of that aside imposing upon the country a permissive abortion regime that the American people to this day have never chosen or accepted. It's hard for me to believe that here I stand in this century arguing that women should be respected, that families should be respected, that everyone's religion should be respected. Because, you see, I support a woman's right to choose. And that means if your religion says you will never end an unwanted pregnancy. I support you. I believe this decision should be between a woman, her doctor, and her God, and her family. And I don't think any United States senator should get in the middle of a woman's private life. And as our program is quickly coming to an end, I'm going to move from two United States senators on the floor of the Senate talking about Roe v. Wade uh, to give you a view of two justices also talking about the decision. Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia. Let's listen in. Take the worst case scenario. Roe v. Wade is overruled by the Supreme Court. There will be states, a sizable number, that will not go back to the way it was. I mean, at the time of Roe v. Wade, there were four states it gave women access to abortion without any questions asked in the first trimester. So those states are not going to change. What it means is a woman who can afford a plane ticket, a bus ticket, will be able to decide for herself whether to have an abortion. But the women who won't have that choice are poor women. 
These are these are political questions for the for the American people to decide. That's what democracy is about. You think you think abortion. Uh, 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 should not be prohibited, fine. Persuade your fellow citizens. Pass a law. Uh, you think the opposite? Persuade them the other way. But don't tell me that the Constitution has has taken that issue out of democratic choice. It simply hasn't. So there we have both the court, members of the court uh, currently, and also United States senators uh, laying out the continued divisive arguments over Roe v. Wade. We have only about three minutes left. I also wanted to just get on the record uh, the uh, effect on the court itself, because in appointments from Roe on, this became something of a litmus test argued by both sides. Can you talk about the impact on the selection of justices for the court? Well, as you noted, it has been a litmus test ever since probably 1976. I mean, Justice Stevens' nomination was probably the last in which it wasn't an issue, uh, or um, not much of an issue. And so it has, uh, I think there's evidence that it has skewed uh, judicial appointments to the Supreme Court. It is, It has become a disproportionately emphasized issue um, it, when you take into consideration all of the other serious statutory and constitutional and policy issues that uh, Supreme Court uh, justices address uh, on the court, um, and, and yet it has skewed consideration, and I think that's been to the detriment of the country and the court. Well, one of the interesting stories that abounds about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's confirmation was that Je- um, President Clinton worried about appointing her because she had this law review article in which she was very critical of Roe versus Wade, and he worried that she was against it. He later went back and read it and found that she was really just against the reasoning, instead felt that it should have been an equal protection case and mollified. He appointed her to the bench. But you're right. I mean, it plays out on both sides. This is a litmus test issue, and it plays out in different ways depending on who the president is. So as we close here, for both of you, uh, what should people, how should they think about this case and its impact on our society and on the court? And I guess the next question is, where does this country go from here, given the heat that continues Mm -hmm. around this issue? Melissa Murray, why don't you start? This is a very difficult question about which people who are very reasonable can disagree. Um, some people on, on, on one side of the issue think that this is a question of women's basic rights, about their participation in society as equal citizens. Others focus on the life of the unborn child and questions of democratic process. And I think those are hard things to try and reconcile. I think we're trying to play it out in the political process. But every so often, intermittently, the court intervenes and either takes us in one direction or another. Well, it truly was an b- abuse of discretion. Uh, it was a, a tragedy for the court to step into this issue uh, prematurely and to step into this issue and take over the issue for the last 42 years and to try to be the National Abortion Control Board. And it has failed in, in, in that task. And the best thing the court can do is to return the issue to the American people where public opinion and public policy would be uh, allowed to be more in sync. And, and that would... Uh, I think alleviate a, a lot of the tension on the issue, and um, and restore public opinion uh, to its rightful place in determining the outcome of this issue. So at this point, we are at the final moments of our landmark uh, cases series. Thank you so much for being with us throughout these twelve cases. Uh, the series is archived on C-SPAN's website, cspan.org. Uh, you can find it easily under the series. We have all of the video from each of the 12 programs there for you, including other videos uh, that didn't make it into the television production, visits to historic sites, 
uh, and uh, oral histories from people involved in these cases. You can also read all of the opinions and hear the audio from the opinions on our Landmark Cases website. And finally, if you'd like to have uh, as uh, on your bookshelf the Landmark Cases book written by Tony Morrow, who's been covering the court for the past 30 years, uh, that's also available and we can get it out to you very quickly. Thanks to our two guests tonight, Melissa Murray and also Clark Forsyth, for being with us as we learn more about the background and the importance of the Roe v. Wade case in 1973. Thank you for your expertise. Thank you. You can watch all 12 programs and learn more about C-SPAN's Landmark Cases series online at cspan.org slash landmarkcases. There you can also order C-SPAN's Landmark Cases book, featuring background, highlights, and the legal impact of each case. Written by veteran Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow and published by C-SPAN in cooperation with CQ Press. Landmark Cases is available for $8.95 plus shipping.